You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focused the Driven. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. I trust you are well, David. Giles, I'm well. Uh, we've got to uh, trust our listeners are well and we've got a great speaker today who really knows what he's talking about. Well, I think so, yes. Uh, Dr Alan Finkel, of course, is the former Chief Scientist of Australia and he has recently launched a new book called Powering Up. It's the pathway to Australia's water um, net zero for Australia and, um, and quite possibly the world. Um, without further ado, we talked to Dr Finkel just a few moments ago and um, this is what he had to say. Uh, Dr. Alan Finkel, thank you very much for joining the uh, Energy Insiders podcast. Pleasure to be here, Giles and Dave. Um, well, congratulations on your new book and your um, speaking tour around Australia. And you've been very busy doing interviews with the media and um, on ABC and um, other platforms. I want to start out by asking what you mean by an electrostate, because that is what you think Australia can be. Um it's an important term, and obviously it's derived from petrostate, and everybody knows that a petrostate is an oil exporting state. You might argue that it's also a natural gas exporting state, but it's a, a state that gets a substantial fraction of its revenue from exporting oil. Um, in the future, and we don't know when, 15, 20, 25, 30 years from now, the world will not be trading oil but we still need to be trading energy and all the accoutrements around energy. So I define electrostate two different ways. There are two opportunities to be an electrostate. One is trading energy. Australia, like some other countries, such as Chile and Saudi Arabia, has the ability, because of our abundant solar and wind resources and our project know-how, to take renewable electricity in the form of solar and wind electricity uh, produce hydrogen and send that hydrogen or energy carrying derivatives of hydrogen such as ammonia around the world. In other words, we will be exporting sunshine. I call that shipping sunshine to other countries because just because we get rid of oil, coal and gas doesn't mean the countries don't need to buy and sell energy because not every country is endowed with what they need in terms of either hydroelectricity, solar or wind. So shipping sunshine is one way of being an electrostate. The other is by exporting the resources, what I call the energy transition materials that will underpin the manufacturing economy for solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, electric cars, heat pumps and, and the like. Let's go, go with the first bit about shipping energy because there's been a fair bit of debate around the world about the ability to ship hydrogen and ammonia at a, at, a, at a competitive cost. And Australia, while it has fantastic wind and solar resources, also has the misfortune of being quite a distance from most of its major markets or would-be markets. Um, we also see the potential in having subsea cables going out to Singapore. And I think the developers, the promoters of the Sun Cable project, for instance, think they can replicate that project well, they've got to build the first one first, but if they had success, well, they can do multiples of those. So um, maybe you can sort of um, talk about the sort of the competitive um, pricing of um, hydrogen or ammonia, green ammonia for export. So it's, it's, I, I agree with you. It's a real challenge. Um, and it's not going to be as common as I would have thought four or five years ago because it's hard to see the shipping costs of liquefied hydrogen being low enough and then when you look at the up total cost of converting hydrogen into ammonia and then shipping the ammonia and then dehydrogenating it at the other end being low enough there was a very good report done called high supply a report done between germany and australia and interestingly virtually all around the world developers and governments can see the price of producing hydrogen at the production facility getting down towards a dollar US per kilogram. But almost no one can see the cost of shipping hydrogen 
getting below about $2.50 per kilogram. Mm. So you, you're absolutely right. Shipping sunshine uh, as hydrogen will be expensive. But for countries like Japan, where they don't have the resources, they will need to import energy and importing it as, as hydrogen or ammonia or, or liquid organic hydrogen carriers will be important for them. But I don't see shipping sunshine as being extensive in the way that we've been shipping petrol, oh, sorry, um, crude oil and natural gas and coal. Alan, I, I might just, just interject quickly or ask, I think there's about seven kilograms per gigajoule if we want to compare it to, to gas. So we're talking a shipped cost, a dollar plus $2.50 of 21 US dollars a gigajoule sort of thing. Is that the number that, or have I got that wrong? No, you, you, you're very close. It's about eight, eight kilograms per gigajoule. So it's a little bit higher than that. It might be $24. So it's not out of the ballpark completely. Japan's landed cost for LNG is typically between 12 and 15 dollars gigajoule of course it's been much higher during the ukraine war um, supply shortages so it's not out of the question for japan but it's more than they're used to and they you know look innovation is always capable of uh, proving myself and everybody else wrong and maybe the price of shipping will come down to a dollar 50 in which case it's two dollars 50 times eight and you're getting closer to just you know, $20 or below. Uh, so it's still more expensive than LNG, but not orders of magnitude more expensive. And but the, sorry, just one more thing. The interesting thing about the high supply, high supply study is they didn't find the distance made much of a difference. It's going to be more or less the same price whether you're shipping it to from Australia to, say, Singapore or Australia to Germany. It's the cost of liquefaction. It's the cost of the ship that makes it expensive. So I think from an economics point of view, and, and I apologise, I didn't mean to start asking questions until Giles yeah, it's all a good. couple more. It's all good, David. It's all good. <laughs> uh, but this theme of how Australia can take retain its global position as the world's second or third largest exporter of energy, which it is at the moment, compared to Russia, uh, Saudi Arabia and Indonesia are our major competitors for that. Um, and hydrogen was one way. Cables are another, but clearly a more limited way. A third way, I suppose, that Arena used to talk about was using the energy to shift manufacturing of end products like steel or, or, or batteries or electric cars to Australia. And speaking as a financial analyst who did stockbroking for a long time, I'm very sceptical about people in government who say you can do this, who've never done it themselves. But I'm interested, Alan, in your views of what you think is there, is there, is there a clear direction that Australia should focus in? Uh, th there is. Can I just quickly finish on the alternative that you mentioned about cables? The, the difference between shipping energy by undersea cables as electricity is, is first of all, it's fantastic because you're not suffering the losses of converting the electricity into hydrogen and then the hydrogen at the other end back into electricity. But unlike shipping, it is very, very dependent on distance. And so long distance undersea cables, uh, I don't think that anything's ever been done more than about seven or 800 kilometers uh, so far in the world. So, you know, it's a challenge to go 4,000 kilometers. The price just goes up and up. But getting to your point, Dave, uh, I agree the best way to ship energy from Australia is embedded into products. And I don't mean cars or, or finished battery packs. I mean decarbonized commodities like green iron, uh, green fertilizer, green methanol for shipping, or green jet fuel for aviation. That's uh, that's interesting uh, uh, because it's and, and this brings me to a second point. We know that to decarbonize, and these things are kind of tied together. Every that, that the way to do it is to decarbonize the electricity system, and then also work on transport and 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 heat processing. Uh, but uh, I, I guess my question really is, we need to build heaps and heaps more wind and solar. I think everyone understands that. And I guess I want to ask you, uh, as someone who's been close to government policy uh, for a while now, uh, what would you say about the policy framework? I'm asking that in the most open way possible. 
Oh, it's, um, as you know, an evolving landscape. Um, what you described is well understood that we need to decarbonize the existing electricity system and then triple it so that we can decarbonize transport and uh, and building heat and industrial heat. Uh, of course, even though I described that as two steps, it's really overlapping. So we're decarbonizing the electricity system as we're starting to electrify the transport, as we're starting to electrify our, our direct combustion sector, and uh, all up that will require that we triple our electricity production just for domestic needs from what it is today. Um, so I, I think government absolutely does understand that. Uh, in terms of the policy, I think it's quite extraordinary how much has been achieved over the last two decades. You know, Australia for a couple of years now has been the world number one on in terms of solar installed capacity and generation per person. I think we're about fourth in the world of solar and wind combined. I heard an interesting uh, perspective just a few days ago that if you're looking at continental scale grids, so not states but continental scale, the Australian mainland is apparently the most intense variable renewable electricity or inverter connected electricity system in the world, which means that we're pioneering these um, operational challenges of a high variable renewable electricity system. So we've been making progress, but what's terrific at the moment is that there's legislated intent and there's clear policy and determination coming from uh, the federal government and the state governments. But there are lots of challenges that mean that getting there whilst it still is possible, will be difficult. I'm just wondering whereabouts we're trying to get to. Um, is it net zero by 2050, which is kind of the stated target? And um, But I think most of the climate scientists would tell us that uh, we probably need to actually get to net zero by 2042, or I think even the latest study, maybe even the late 1930s. Um, or is it, say, like a zero carbon grid by 2030, and, um, and we've got rather a modest cut in, in emissions by 43%. As the, as the former sort of chief scientist of, of Australia, how quickly should we would be should we be aiming for net zero, and so how quickly I, can we do it? So I don't I don't interpret the science as a brick wall. I mean, if you look at the most recent analyses, we're, we're at the rate that we're burning fossil fuels and putting out emissions at the moment, there's only about five years to go until we've used up the full carbon emissions budget that would take us to the 1.5 degrees uh, temperature rise, which would be before 2030, net zero globally. It's mm. just not feasible. Um, I, I take the science to say, listen all, we need to move as quickly as we can. And so, you know, net zero by 2050, net zero by 2045, whatever we can achieve, it's important to do so. So we've got to be thoughtful and determined. But this is not a simple solution, simple problem we just turn off the emitting uh, sources. We've got a global economy to run, we've got a national economy to run, we've got state economies to run, we've got household economies to run. The world, let me, wrong word, civilization, modern civilization is absolutely dependent on a managed energy supply. You take that away and it's literally back to Fred Flintstone and the Stone Age. So we've got to be investing in the new to produce the zero emissions energy that we need before we phase out the old. And you know, I just like the idea of investing so efficiently and effectively in solar, wind, batteries, transmission lines and digitalization that we push the coal and gas out of the system. And how fast we do it, is just as fast as we can. The, the target I'm thinking of when I say we've got targets is the 2030 target of 82% renewables. Uh, Alan, if you're betting, will we make that? I, if I was betting with dollars, I'll say yes. If I was betting with my life, I'd, I'd be hesitant. Um, <laughs> I, I think we've got a chance, but we have to get everything Right. And you've probably been hearing a lot of um, reports from Energy Week this week and people expressing their concern about transmission lines, and I deeply agree with that. The biggest challenge we've got at the moment is the rate that we can put out transmission lines. Without transmission lines, the new solar and wind farms from the renewable energy zones just can't connect. 
but I don't accept that. I mean, I, I do accept that. And, and anyone who listens to this podcast will know I've been talking about transmission since 2016, although the podcast hasn't been going that long. And we, we, we've had Texas talking about how they did it there. And I know you visited uh, uh, yes. Texas as part of the Finkel uh, report. But I, I still think that our big gentailers like AGL and Origin and Energy Australia and our big renewable companies like Tilt uh, and Iberadola and CWP could just assume that by the time they've built their next 10 gigawatts of wind farms, the transmission will also be built because it takes forever to get these bloody wind farms built as well. So why aren't they announcing them now uh, is what I'm asking you and anyone else and, and, and accepting their share of the responsibility instead of sitting around blaming transmission companies and, and a lack of transmission. Oh look, I, I I think they're right. It it doesn't. It, it takes half of forever to get a wind farm built, but it takes a full forever to get transmission lines built. I mean, you're right. It does take time to get your regulatory approve regulatory approvals and, and and farm owner or landowner approvals to build a solar farm, but it's not nearly as hard as getting the the transmission lines done. And how can you do financial commitment to a wind farm if you don't know that you can connect it? Well, the point is you can make an assumption. I mean, people make bets all the time. Elon Musk didn't know. It's, it's, it's not a bet. It's, it's the other way around. You know that the transmission line will not be there when you finish the wind farm. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe there'll be a delay of a year, you know. But, uh, but I mean, we know now, for instance, in New South Wales... Uh, that the transmission will be here by 2030. To build some of these wind farms is going to take at least four years from today. Uh, so, you know, you, you're not going to be sitting around any longer than, say, Stockyard Hill already sat around, if I can put it that way. And you could be at least announcing them that you're going to be building them and, and getting on with it slowly, and like, uh, like, say, Golden Plains has done in Victoria. That, that's my view. I mean, look, the, these um, developers are, are fairly enthusiastic, aggressive people, and I think they'll do their financial closure and start building as soon as they can see that there is a modest surety that the um, that the transmission lines are there. Uh, I don't think there's any deliberate attempt to hold things up. Oh, I it's disagree, a, it's, it's I, I'm sorry, I disagree. I don't think Energy Australia or Origin or AGL have hardly announced a project in years and years and years. And that's not because there wasn't any transmission. It's just because they haven't seen it as um, they haven't seen it as being in their financial interest one way or another. Well, they, they, you know, we privatised the market. The whole idea was to provide profit motives for developers to develop things. If you're saying that they should develop irrespective of financial opportunity, that's really calling into question the whole logic of the national electricity market. Yeah, well, we'll move it on, but I would argue they've protected their existing cash flows and because they own the retail from the coal generation and, uh, and they just haven't seen... Uh, any incentive in closing those any earlier than they absolutely have to. And as a result, in my opinion, on balance and on average, they say nice things, but they've done their level best to slow things down. Let's hope that we can get to 82% renewables by 2030. But um, for your description of Australia as an electro state, Alan, um, it's going to need vastly more um, arrays of wind and solar. Um, I couldn't help but notice in the interview that was in The Australian over the weekend, I think they sort of described you talking about fields carpeted with uh, solar panels and wind farms, which I think they thought was a bit of a horror show because not even <laughs> the Australian agrees with the, uh, the the beauty of wind turbines and things. But, but how much do we need, do you think, and where will they be? So th the numbers have been done often. We're approaching about a third of our existing national electricity market uh, generation coming from re renewables, a little bit of that, 5 or 6% is hydroelectricity, it's the solar and wind that's growing and I, I think all your listeners would be aware of the fact that the growth potential in Australia is solar and wind, not hydroelectricity and certainly not nuclear. So about a third today, solar and wind, a little bit under, we need to therefore triple that in order to have a 100% electricity supply equal to what we have at the moment and when you do the numbers on uh, what's required for transport and heating and all the other uses of fossil fuels in direct combustion or stationary energy as it's called we probably need to triple the electricity supply uh, on top of that so it's three times three we need about nine times more solar and wind than we have cumulatively 
today. That's just for our normal domestic operations. We need a lot more than that if we're going to become an electrostate exporting decarbonized commodities. Really, a very many, many times more. And so, where are we going to put that? We're going to put that in the Northern Territory and Western Australia yeah, I, I, and um, in, in semi arid regions? Yeah, personally, I see virtually all of it being off grid. Um, basically, in order to produce, say, green iron by using hydrogen and renewable electricity instead of coal in that first stage of converting the iron oxide into elemental iron, um, cost. The cost, the running cost, is totally dependent on the cost of electricity, and for things to work and get to, you know, to get close to the current price of iron and fertilizer and other things, you need to be using electricity at about US ten dollars a megawatt hour, so fifteen dollars a megawatt hour Australian, um, for making hydrogen and for directly using it. So you can't afford the costs of being connected to the national electricity market or the Swiss. The um, I'd like to get back up. Well, it's actually interesting. Just on the um, the Swiss, um, I just noticed that they've um, they've just did a demand forecast in Western Australia and talking about exactly the sort of industries that you've been so you talk, you write about in the book and you've been talking about on this podcast. The sort of the green industries, the hydrogen production, and they've um, predicted that they'll need fifty gigawatts of wind, solar, and storage. Um, you know, within a decade or possibly a bit more than a decade to actually sort of to be able to deal with that. So they're now thinking seriously about how they do that. And it's quite noticeable that in the last couple of months or last couple of weeks even, they've been rolling out a series of very major battery storage projects as they seek to accelerate the transition of their own grid. And the, the, the Swiss is a remarkably interesting grid because it's a multi-gigawatt grid and it's the biggest and most remote isolated grid in the world. So they can't sort of rely on interconnectors and other states sort of filling the gaps or exporting their excess. They really have to do everything there on the spot. So. Um, it's a fascinating um, place to place to see, um, and and not just because they've also got these fantastic wind and solar resources, which, um, as you mentioned, are off grid. Plus, they've got iron ore as well. So um, that might be a very interesting part of the equation. Oh, I, I totally agree. And fifty gigawatts. I th did you say that was till twenty thirty? Oh, well, a decade, I think. I mean, yeah. Um, so let's yeah. say a decade from now. But if you look out thirty years, when hopefully all steel making will be converted to green iron as the first step um, the, the the requirements could get into the hundreds of gigawatts of electricity and electro you know d directly used and hundreds or of gigawatts of electricity used for the hydrogen production that is needed in in many of these decarbonized products um, so you know potentially in future we'll be producing 10, 15 or 20 times as much electricity per year as we currently produce per year. The numbers could be enormous. Let's just talk about the hydrogen, though, because you, you've been a, you've been a strong advocate for for hydrogen. I remember um, you sitting down with me at a um, at a cafe just outside a writers' festival, explaining to me exactly what hydrogen was. Because at the time, I don't think I knew, and I still wonder if I do know. Um, but there's been some recent assessments. Um, there's, look, there's been a lot of hope about and hype about um, hydrogen. I think there's even been a um, um, there's been this wonderful expression called hopium, um, which I was using until I actually discovered there was a hydrogen company called hopium. But I'm just wondering, do we now have a better understanding of what hydrogen will and what it will not do? There's a couple of like hydrogen ladders which have been sort of put out by people like Michael Liebrick and others, which sort of say that certain industries, certain sectors will very much be hydrogen. And you mentioned a couple of them, fertilizers and shipping maybe and others. And others probably won't or, you know, household appliances, cars even or other things. Have you sort of adjusted your thinking over the last couple of years? Uh, I, I certainly have and I've um, elaborated that in the book and in, and in speeches over the last year too. Um, when we produced or developed the National Hydrogen Strategy, it started in 2018 and uh, to a large extent I personally was motivated by the Japanese national hydrogen strategy that came out in 2017 and it was December 2017 it was full of just enormous projections of what the uptake would be for vehicles and for importing hydrogen and ammonia in you know millions of tons per per year by the time 2030 came but certainly in the last four or five years 
that kind of demand has not eventuated and I don't think it is likely to eventuate. So if you divide it into what's less likely for the future of hydrogen, um, I don't see hydrogen being used in the reticulated gas system for home heating or home cooking um, because of the expense and the difficulty and just the slowness with which the industry has moved and at the same time uh, the electricity substitution industry through heat pumps and induction stoves uh, you know they're kicking goals so the efficiency argues for electricity for those purposes and the rate of progress argues for electricity for those purposes when it comes to transport for personal cars um, I can tell you with experience I have um, electric car, uh, bat sorry, battery electric car, and I am one of the few people you've spoken to has who owns and drives a hydrogen electric car. Now, when I have to recharge the battery electric car, we've got a, a low power three, but low current three phase charger, so I can plug it in even if it's nearly empty in the evening and in the morning when I get up. That car is the battery is fully charged. And the effort to do that is you get out of the car, you reach out with your left hand, you plug the plug into the car and you go into the house. It's really easy. The hydrogen car, it only takes three or four minutes to fill. But filling it is a 63 minute experience because there's only one refueling station in Melbourne. It's the only one in Victoria. There's only a handful in Australia. So it's a 63 minute experience, which is 30 minutes to drive to Altona from where I live in South Yarra, three minutes to fill it up and 30 minutes to drive back. Um, you, nothing can compete with the extraordinary convenience and performance of a battery electric car. So I'm pretty sure that uh, all, all passenger vehicles, not all, but the vast majority of passenger vehicles and most small commercial vehicles will be battery electric. The transport opportunity for hydrogen is, as has often been said, the long distance heavy haul. So we're starting to see in Europe now and finally in Canada, um, hydrogen powered trains being used on non-electrified railroads instead of diesel and that makes a lot of sense uh, the logistics are easy because they only really need to have a hydrogen refueling station at one or both ends of the train line um, hydrogen so so that's direct uses of hydrogen um, but as, as we've already discussed hydrogen is going to be used in enormous quantities for liquefied fuels and decarbonized products so take the most extreme example the aviation industry it's about three percent of global emissions and growing all the time um, they use jet fuel jet fuel is an extraordinarily useful product it's high energy density it doesn't freeze even at minus 50 degrees high up in the stratosphere when the plane is in cruise and it doesn't boil even when that plane's on the tarmac in Dubai under a 50 degree uh, hot sun. So it's high energy density, it's not volatile, it doesn't freeze. Um, batteries can't provide that kind of energy density, hydrogen can't provide that energy density. Uh, I, I don't think I'm sure that in my lifetime but in probably most listeners lifetimes the, the it's not likely that anybody will get on a battery powered airplane in Sydney with 350 fellow passengers take off in Sydney and land in Los Angeles you just don't have the energy density so we need a synthetic or an alternative jet fuel that is carbon neutral and there are two pathways and hydrogens involved in both one is to use biomass as a feedstock but you've got to do modern biomass processes in order to get a drop-in jet fuel replacement and that involves hydrogen treatment and if you do it right you can actually get a jet fuel which is actually kerosene that can be used as a drop-in replacement without any blending with fossil fuel jet fuel the and that's that's good it's it's much better than fossil fuel but it's not a hundred percent carbon neutral uh, because of all the investment in the energy investment in growing and collecting the biomass um, the ultimate of course is to use electricity solar and wind electricity to use a technology-based solution to capture carbon dioxide out of the air to use more electricity to split water to make hydrogen now you've got carbon in the carbon dioxide and hydrogen put into a renewable electricity driven synthesizer and produce synthetic kerosene which is a truly carbon neutral 
absolutely limitless source of jet fuel. It's got one significant problem at the moment, it's very expensive. But like solar panels 20 years ago, there's some good chance it'll come down the cost curve and be practical. So whether we're looking at um, marine fuel or, or jet fuel or green iron or, well, or green iron um, or um, uh, fertilizers, we're going to need huge quantities of hydrogen. So the real potential for hydrogen, the biggest potential for hydrogen is as a chemical. Alan? That's really interesting. I just wanted to come back to a comment you made earlier. So I recently went to uh, present to uh, as the sort of um, uh, uh, odd person out to a bunch of conservative investors about why nuclear wasn't the answer and wind and solar were. Uh, but I'm wondering, I'm not a scientist, that's for sure. I'm a financial analyst. I'm wondering if you can explain why, in your opinion, nuclear is unlike you don't see nuclear as being having i don't know i, I wouldn't use where where is nuclear's place likely to be and what are the reasons and can you comment about the prospects for the small load following nuclear reactors which you know kind of fit into my idea of a long way out there and not really useful right now <laughs> yeah look it, it it comes up all the time um look from from a purely electrical engineering point of view if you've been given the task of producing a reliable zero emission system, there's nothing that would be better than nuclear. It's, uh, nuclear is, uses very, very few resources. You don't need rare earth elements. You don't need any lithium or cobalt or batteries of any kind. Um, it, it's just a, it's a small real estate footprint. And then you don't use much uranium fuel. And I know we're all concerned about waste, and quite rightly, but it's not a big volume issue. So in terms of physical resources, nuclear is very small compared to solar and wind um, and, hydro and catchment hydroelectricity. Uh, in terms of its performance as a generator, nuclear generators are wonderful. They understand the heartbeat of the AC electrical system. They've got inertia, they've got system strength, and they deliver the electricity when you want it, not when Mother Nature says it should be delivered. So from a purely engineering point of view, nuclear is fantastic. But once we have to be realistic. Nuclear does not have social license in Australia. There is legislation that was brought in by the Howard government under pressure, but brought in by the Howard government back in 1998. It's illegal to do anything with nuclear energy in the power sector in Australia. So the Transitioning from that to adoption of nuclear would be socially very difficult. But let's say that we did. Let's say that we did. What are we going to do? Are we going to build the giant three gigawatt nuclear generators that have been done for the last 50 or 60 years? No way. They're insanely slow to do and very, very expensive. There's, there's a big one under construction at the moment, a 3.2 gigawatt, gigawatt um, system under construction in England called Hinkley C. And the price per gigawatt is is north of 15 billion dollars it's it's just the most expensive capital expenditure that you could imagine and it's taking more, more expensive than barumba pumped hydro sorry that's a joke but they are cheaper in china but keep going sorry the answer is you are right joking or not so we're not going to do that so the only potential path for us would be what you've already flagged which is smr small modular reactors which, if they're very small, like 50 or 60 or 70 megawatts, uh, could even conceivably be used in a load-following uh, means. But they've got a long way to go. So the most advanced small modular reactor is by a company called NuScale, N-U Scale, uh, in America. And after seven years and being fast-tracked by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they're almost they're likely to get their approval this year. Seven years in regulatory limbo, and that's fast-tracked. And you can't do a nuclear develop, you know, reactor plant in America if you don't go through the NRC. It's like putting a drug onto the market, you have to go through the FDA. If you want to put a reactor onto the market, you have to go through the NRC. New scale, if they get their approval this year, they're hoping to have their first operating plant, which will be 1270, or thereabouts units, megawatt units, um, so about 800 and something uh, megawatts in Utah by the end of the decade, 2029, perhaps it'll be 2030. Now let's say Australia uh, 
decided we wanted to follow that kind of pathway. We're not going to get ahead of them. That's inconceivable. We'd have to wait for a few years of operation. We'd have to watch them say three years, so now it's 2033. Then we make the decision to press the button. You've got to develop the regulatory system. You've got to find a site. You've got to go through the regulatory process. You've got to go through years in the courts fighting the people who object to that site and, and developing a waste management plan. I, I cannot see any possibility of Australia, even if we went at it full speed ahead, having small modular reactors before 2040. And I'm hopeful that by 2040, we'll have a zero emissions or a near zero emissions reliable, uh, affordable electricity system by then. And so then this nuclear generation will be turning on uh, and competing with what will be cheaper zero emissions electricity admittedly done the hard way but that's what they'll be facing so i just can't see it as being possible i agree with that it's pretty much exactly what i thought it's it's like a solution but we don't that we don't need we can do it without that even if it might be have some advantages in some circumstances and it's not timely is its ultimate disadvantage you also mentioned uh, um, uh, using hydrogen for biofuels. I mean, you know, the Australian farming sector probably likes the idea of biofuels, but I must say, I'm, they, and they've also been talked about for shipping as well as for um, um, uh, air, air flight. Uh, what's the prospect for Australia growing whatever i mean i don't really understand biofuel I, I tend to spend most of my time on wind and solar and other stuff <laughs> um can you talk a bit about biofuels look um you know there's a lot of optimism out there but you've got to be realistic you know the bio the, the biomass has to come from somewhere so people talk about it coming from uh waste landfill decomposition from waste cooking oil and from agricultural residue and it can, but how much of that is there? So if you wanted to use biofuels for um, th the most you know, desperate applications, it would be a, a renewable diesel for long distance trucking, renewable methanol for the International Maritime Fleet, and renewable kerosene as jet fuel for the long distance aviation fleet. Realistically, if it was to be used at scale in all three of those industries, there just would not be enough biofuel unless you start taking away arable land, agriculture, agricultural land that's used for fuel, and that's just unacceptable. So the decisions would have to be made, say, well, let's ne never use it for renewable diesel. Let's never use it as renewable diesel for trucking because the alternative there is to use batteries or hydrogen directly. So that leaves you with the two very difficult to abate sectors, which is international maritime operations and international long distance aviation. And there, some people estimate that you could do a fairly substantial amount, but others say only a fraction. Um, it's, it's a guessing game. It truly is a guessing game. I, I can't see biofuels being the ultimate solution for either the maritime or the aviation fleet. But it's much easier to get started on a drop-in replacement for fossil fuel with hydrogen-treated biomass to produce renewable methanol and renewable jet fuel than to get started with capturing carbon dioxide from the air and synthesizing the methanol and synthesizing the, uh, the jet fuel. So um, I see it in a sense as the early adopter solution and it might have a long-term future but it will have to be supplemented with synthetic fuels. And and Alan, uh, in terms of uh, the early adopters, how far down the track are we at the moment in, in, in sort of, I don't know, costing pilot plants or can you, are you aware? Um, I'm not an expert on it, but there's an international company, I think they're out of either Denmark or Norway, called Neste, not Nestle the chocolate company, but Neste, N-E-S-T-E, who seems to be leading the world on doing the, the um, modern biofuels. And uh, last time I looked, it was still less than a percent of the actual annual consumption. And um, just coming back to Australia and what we should do, um, we know what we should do to decarbonise our own system, but coming back to this export issue, do you have in your mind, and I mean, it's always difficult for people to uh, pick winners, but 
you know, when I think about it, I think like um, adding value to to lithium to make uh, anodes uh, uh, or to make lithium hydroxide uh, from spodumene, something, you know, the, the process of the conversion that's done in China at the moment, maybe that's the way to go, but maybe there's some other industry uh, like it's a bit hard to start making green iron ore. You need special ore, don't you? Magnetite or something. I'm I'm confused about that. I mean, you know, if you were thinking as an entrepreneur, which industry would you be thinking about as having a good bet? Uh, probably both of those. So the critical mineral refining. So at the moment, of course, we've been historically a dig to ship. Um, industry and it's starting to change because uh, of, of customer demand. There's nothing more important for a producer than having customers. You've got to make what customers want and because of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US and um, the uh, concerns that the Europeans have of not being dependent on a single source of supply such as China in this case. No, no criticism of China. China is dominant in, in solar panels and batteries because they make really good solar panels and they're cheap and, and abundant. But Europe and America wants diversity in supply uh, and same with batteries and so they're looking to Australia not only for the lithium for example but for the refined lithium. So you mentioned that our lithium is, is spodumene, that's hard rock lithium and mostly up until recently it just gets dug out here sent to china refined into lithium hydroxide that is battery ready a battery ready chemical and then sent to america or europe to be made into batteries or made into batteries in china but we've now started in western australia i think about three uh, plants that will take the spodumene and turn it into lithium hydroxide and that's a value-added material for shipping. It's also more cost-effective for shipping because it's nearly 10 times um, smaller in volume by the time you've done the refinement per tonne of lithium. Similarly, BHP's recently started refining the nickel ore to make battery-ready nickel sulphate. And there's growing interest and, and investment in refining our rare earth elements. It's complex to do rare earth element refining. It's energy intensive. Um, customers see it better if it's as, 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 see it as being better for two reasons if it comes for Australia first of all it's diversity compared to all coming from uh, refining refineries in China but also we have a lower emissions profile energy that's used in that refinement process so so refining those so-called critical materials for export is, is I think a very large opportunity for Australia but the green iron you know it's it's potentially just around the corner. I don't know how far the, you know, how big the corner is, but the largest uh, steel maker in the world is a Chinese company. I think it's pronounced Bauer. And just in the last few days, they've written MOUs with Rio and with Fortescue to investigate green iron production. You're right when you said that our hematite is not ideal. You need uh, high high concentration iron oxide uh, to do the hydrogen processing and magnetite starts off as low concentration but it's fairly easily beneficiated by using the magnetic properties of the magnetite to separate it from the gang the the stuff you don't want but ingenuity will prevail the hematite miners are already working on how they can either upgrade or beneficiate the quality of their hematite or modify the hydrogen re reduction process so that it doesn't care. So we'll get there. Yeah, I, I, look, I'll hand back to Giles, but I certainly agree with you about the customers. I mean, uh, uh, um, uh, there was some uh, Swedish, I think I've mentioned the Swedish Chamber of Commerce thing I, I, I hosted at one stage where I asked about green aluminium and wouldn't it be too expensive? And and the uh, guy who just held some in his hands said that, um, you know, the customers would absolutely pay any price for it because it, its value is so much more than its cost at the moment because it's it's such a premium product. But Giles, over to you. Well, look, um, uh, as, as you say, Alan, I think uh, some of the, the, the hematite miners have got much at stake, so I think they'll be uh, <laughs> busting their guts to find a solution to that. Um, otherwise, there'd be a lot of stranded assets up there in the Pilbara, I'd imagine. Um, look, uh, we've um, spent... I feel like we've just sort of scratched the conversation, uh, scratched the surface of the uh, of this subject, and it's been fascinating to talk to you, but I think most of our listeners have probably either finished the washing up or the gardening or driving out to Altona or whatever it is that they do when they're listening to this podcast. But um, it, it leaves me with one final question 
question, um, Alan, what are you going to do with your Toyota Mirai um, hydrogen car? Are you going to keep it and keep on driving out to Altona? And um, maybe I can ask, um, we hear a lot about electrification at the moment of households and things like that. I'm just wondering how you're traveling in that particular line, if you're traveling at all. Um, so on, on the car, I, I've got it under a three-year lease. That's the way the Toyota's made it available and sort of getting towards the end of the second year. And I... I don't know what Toyota themselves will want to do uh, at the end of the third year, but I am hopeful there is talk that the CSIRO in Clayton, which is in the southeast of where I live, will be putting in a small refueling station, and that would be great because I happen to go in that direction fairly frequently, but I don't go to Altona for any other reason than to refuel the car. Oh, sounds like you're keen to keep it. <laughs> Um, well, it's, oh, it's enjoyable to drive. It's, it's a pure electric car. The only difference between a battery electric car and a hydrogen electric car is you've got the energy stored in the electrochemical energy of the battery in a conventional battery electric car, and you've got the energy stored in the chemical energy of the hydrogen. But on board, you've got a fuel cell that converts that chemical energy into electricity, which then goes into an inverter into your electric motor. So it's a nice, smooth, high-performance electric car. And I do enjoy driving it. Um, in terms of electrifying my own home, it's um, difficult because we're part of a, um, a, sh a, th a three-family shared building and uh, the existing heating is gas and the gas boilers are really small and converting them to heat pumps will be physically difficult so it's for me it's a watch this space we've got solar panels of course um, but going to the next step which is um, heat pumps is a watch this space exercise for us part of the part of the challenge facing many people in the community um alan it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you as i said before i think we've only just scratched the surface but um really um thank you very much for your time and your insights and um all the best in your continuation of your uh, of your tour thank you giles and thank you dave and that was Dr. Alan Finkel, uh, the former chief scientist and author of Powering Up. Um, David, look, fascinating interview. I could have quite easily talked for another hour or two. Um, it's it's really interesting hearing Alan's perspective, just not about uh, just um, you know about Australia's opportunity, but also his own journey along things like the hydrogen path, for instance. Yes, I remember when uh, Dr. Finkel announced the hydrogen uh, pathway with a fantastic presentation in Canberra. Um, and since then, there's been a lot of uh, thought and talk about it. But anyway, he's discussed his views there. Uh, Giles, uh, we don't need to go through them again. Our listeners have just heard them. What else has been happening this week? Well, I think one of the big news, biggest piece of news over the last couple of weeks has been the um, the new battery announced by Neowin over in Western Australia in the coal town of Collie. It was only a couple of weeks ago that um, the Western Australian government announced that Synergy, the state-owned um, utility, was going to build a big four-hour battery, 500 megawatts, 2,000 megawatt hours um, at Collie, where the last of the state-owned coal generators are due to close down uh, within about five six years and now Neowin has, um, has signed a four-hour battery with a very specific purpose of sort of squashing what I should sort of describe in the headline as squashing the solar duck. Basically it'll be, it's been contracted and we don't know the nature of that contract or the price of it although we can assume it's quite it's quite uh, lucrative judging by the huge um, earnings uplift uh, forecast by Neowin for those two years um, but basically charging during the day to solve to mop up as much of the rooftop solar as they possibly can in that time and then and sort of release it back in the evening into the evening peak. We are starting, David, to see a um, a new. Oh, how would you describe it? Sort of, it, it, it's the next stage well, we, for battery storage. What we've seen storage, is the evolution it? of of batteries, uh, as exactly as described uh, by the National Renewable Energy Lab in the United States, and we've talked about a lot and written about a lot. Uh, moving from doing frequency control into time shifting of energy from uh, high solar to evening and morning peaks. That, and it's a four-hour battery, and it's uh, so. Whereas all the pr batteries so far basically have been one and two hours, and now we're getting into longer duration. And I must say, at first glance, I think uh, West Australia has been smarter than Queensland. Queensland's opted for 24-hour, two-gigawatt pumped hydro, and uh, I think uh, batteries are more flexible in, in how you can configure them, and you can get more power for the same amount of gigawatt hours. Um, uh, uh, more gigawatts uh, if you want to and just use it as you as you like so mm. 
So, Yeah. Now, the other thing that's happening this week, of course, is the Australian Energy Week conference down in Melbourne. There's a lot of talk there about will will we or won't we meet the um, 82% renewable energy target by 2030. Um, Sounds to me like a lot of people just talking their book, basically. Um, (laughs) Surprise, surprise. The very big generators. Pass the the Valium. (laughs) The big generators saying, oh, it's going to be so difficult. We'd very much like to get there. But, oh, I'm not too sure whether we can build stuff quickly enough. But as you point out. They're not certainly not helping. They haven't done a bloody thing, not one of them. That's that's my, as I've said it several times, but I also think that talking up this transmission bogey uh, just makes it worse, you know, uh, all the time. Everyone's now saying transmission's are, are impossible to do. It's not impossible to do. Plenty of transmission's been done in Australia and all around the world if we actually want to do it and uh, just get behind and actually bloody well do it, you know, and everyone's seen an opportunity to make more money out of it, like whether it's landowners wanting to get paid more or I see that Transgrid now uh, wants to double its uh, regulated asset value without necessarily building a lot more <laughs> other than Humelink or... or uh, uh, I think I just wish we would get on with it and, and, and get on with building some more wind farms. I keep talking about it, but it's just driving me nuts at the moment. Well, it is, yes. And, and a lot of people point out, or an increasing number of people point out, that there's actually a lot that could be done in the uh, local network. There could be a lot could be done with battery storage, just sort of, sort of holding as a placeholder while everyone just sorts out this transmission mess. And I think that sort of battery storage idea has been promoted not just by um, some battery developers such as Eco Energy, who were on the podcast last week and who spoke also this week at um, the Australian Energy Week, but also some of the um, distributed networks themselves. They're pulling hands up and saying, look, guys, we've actually got a lot of spare capacity here. Build a wind farm and um, and we can handle it. But um, yes, it's um, there's, there's some mysterious things happening in the background there, David, or maybe they're not so mysterious. Well, we shouldn't talk too much more about it. I mean, you know, you know New South Wales has come up with a, a, a plan. Queensland has got a good plan. Uh, I think, as we said ages ago, Victoria should get out of transmission. AEMO should get out of transmission in Victoria and hand it to someone else. AEMO should not be doing that job. It's not AEMO's responsibility to manage transmission in Victoria. Well, I think that process actually started. So the actual transmission planning, the initial stages have now been taken over by, um, what's the name of that organisation? It's the state state government body. And I think that's the start of actually um, taking, I think AEMO themselves would probably say that they're not the best people to be going out doing the initial surveys and consultation with um, landowners and things like that. So um, I think you're exactly right. And I think that's probably been recognised David, I think we'll probably leave it there because um, it was a long interview, a long, great interview with Alan Finkel, and we thank Alan for joining the podcast. We thank all our listeners. We thank our sponsors, Evergen and um, Pylon. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Goodbye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.